The ninth and 10th commandment are contained for us in chapter five of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 5.21. God says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or land, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This is God's word. So like I said, we're finishing up our series on the Ten Commandments, and you notice we're going through the Ninth and the Tenth Commandment today, which are parallel thoughts. They both have this idea of coveting, of wanting something that is not yours. Um, It's at this point usually where someone asks the question, why are there two commandments that seem to be saying the same thing? And the answer is, because the Ten Commandments are confusing. Um, God gives us more than ten commandments in the Scriptures, and yet he says there are ten commandments. (laughs) So what the church has been trying to do for its history has been trying to figure out, well, how do we take these more than ten things that God has said and whittle them down to ten things that God has said? And so different denominations of Christianity have numbered the commandments differently. Um, We are Lutherans. We have taken the ancient numbering of the church, uh, but that doesn't mean that if you grew up under a different tradition where the commandments were numbered differently, you are wrong. There is really no right way to number the commandments. What's more important, of course, is what the commandments say. So we're focusing on this commandment about covening or setting your desire on something that is not yours. And we're going to go through these three points today. They're the three points on your notes sheet if you're going to take notes along with us. Um, If you want to grab a notes sheet, there's no shame in getting up and grabbing one as we get started here. But here are the three points. We're going to talk about how we are unhappy. And then we're going to ask, why are we unhappy? And then we're going to see how being unhappy is the only way to truly be happy. So first, we are unhappy. The ninth and 10th commandment basically say to us, you need to be content. You must be happy. You must not want for anything in this life. You should be completely content with everything that you have, everything that you are, everything that you can do. And if you're a thinking person, the first thing that you say to that is, but I'm not. There are so many things that I want, whether it's something about my body, that I would lose a few pounds, that I would be a little bit taller, that I would be born in a different body, that I wouldn't have the aches and pains that I have, that I wouldn't be getting older, or something about our relationships. Perhaps you wish that your family was with you because you're here in Canada by yourself, or you wish you had a family. You're single and you wish you were married. Or maybe you're married and you wish that your spouse was like she or he was back when you married them. Or you're married and you wish you had kids. Or you are married with kids and you wish your kids made different decisions. Or maybe it's something about your life in general. You wish you were working at a different job or living in a different city, making more money, that people would notice and acknowledge you for all the things that you do. And that's just the big existential stuff. Then it's all the little things in our life that make us unhappy. Everything from spilled coffee to getting cut off in traffic to having bad cell phone service. The little things that make us unhappy. The ninth and 10th commandments say, you must be happy, you must be content, but every one of us knows we aren't. But now someone might say to us, to me, well, yeah, I'm unhappy sometimes, but I'm not unhappy all the time. I mean, there are times when I'm in a good mood, I'm chipper, I'm I seem to be happy, but what the ninth and 10th commandment are going to press on us today is actually, we are unhappy all of the time. We're unhappy all of the time. How can I say something like that? 
Well, as we look at the world that we live in, North American society in the 21st century should be the place where people have the most opportunity to be happy. You have more things at your fingertips through the cell phone that is in your pocket than people have been able to access in entire lifetimes any time previous to now. You can marry who you want, associate with who you want, go where you want. You have basically any food that's available to mankind at your grocery store. You have more entertainment than you can possibly consume, and you do it all in arguably the safest society that's ever existed. I mean, if anyone should be happy, it should be people like us. But you know you're not. You know that if you step back and look at your life, basically everything you do on a daily basis is searching for happiness. You work at the job that you work at, you have the relationships that you have, you do the things with your free time that you do because you're trying to be happy. But how many nights do you go to bed unhappy? You haven't accomplished what you wanted to accomplish. You haven't felt the way you want to feel. You haven't seen the things you want to see. We're unhappy. But for some of us, it's even worse. For some of us, we do strive after these things that purport to make us happy, and then we get them. We find out they don't make us happy. We finally do get the job that we've always wanted. We make the amount of money we think we're worth. We're with the person that's our dream girl or guy, and we're not happy. And that's almost more crushing than never reaching it in the first place. We're all unhappy. I mean, if anyone should be happy, it should be people like us. But we're not. And I don't think many of us are willing to admit it. Because in our society, if you're somebody who is constantly unhappy, we give you drugs and send you to therapy. That's what we do culturally. We think if you're not at least a little bit happy, something is totally wrong with you. And so many of us hide from it. We hide from it behind a pill that's supposed to make us happy. We hide from it behind a quick fix, a life hack that's supposed to make us happy because we figure if we can get a quick solution to whatever our unhappiness is, then we won't have to sit in that unhappiness for any length of time or have to spend months or years fighting against that unhappiness, daily admitting to ourselves that we're unhappy. But we are. If anybody should be happy, it should be us. But we're not. We distract ourselves away from our unhappiness. We put things in front of our eyes to get us away from our boredom because God forbid we would have like five minutes to re recount our life and realize how unhappy we are. If you don't believe me, I just ask you to ask yourself this question. Do I ever say, if only, maybe not out loud, but, but in my mind, if only this would be different, if only that would change, if only this would come to pass, then... I would be happy. And then ask yourself, has there ever been a time in your life where you haven't been thinking that? And for most of us, we can't think of a time we weren't at least a little bit unhappy. Why is this? I mean, if you do the math, like you make the equation out, the equation says, there is a God who created all things to be perfect and satisfying and to make us happy. And that God has promised eternal life to all of his creation, with him forever. Why are we unhappy? What the ninth and 10th commandment are trying to get us to see is that the reason that we are unhappy is actually far deeper than some systemic oppression or the opportunities that are around us or the people that we interact with. The reason we are unhappy 
is us. We're the problem. There are people who have diabolical, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking at, apocalyptic visions of the end of the world who are not Christians, and they'll say something like, human beings are a cancer on all of creation. They're a little bit right. Like, what's wrong with the world that God created? Us. We're what's wrong with the world that God created. And it's shown to us in our, our profound unhappiness. You know, as I think about the, the ninth and 10th commandment, I think of it like God is kind of playing poker with us. For those of you who don't know poker, um, the way you play the game is at the end of each hand, you lay down your cards and then whoever has the better hand wins all the chips. And it's sort of like God in, in the last seven of the commandments is laying down his royal flush. He's laying down the fourth commandment and says, you guys don't respect your authority. And then he lays down the fifth commandment and says, and you don't respect your body or anyone else's body. And he lays down the sixth and the seventh and the eighth and so on. And then he finally gets to that ninth and tenth commandment, that last card that's going to seal the deal. He's going to win the hand. You are going to lose. Here it is. You're unhappy. You should be, but you're not. And that, by the way, friends, is why you break all those commandments before. Why do you rebel against authority? Well, because you think if you had the authority or someone else had the authority, then you'd be happy. Why don't you take care of your body? Because you think the things that you do to your body will make you happy. Or you think that taking advantage of someone else's body will make you happy. Why don't you honor God's gift of marriage? Well, because you think that you should get something out of your spouse to make you happy. Or if your spouse isn't making you happy, then you can go somewhere else to find something or someone who will make you happy. Why don't you respect God's gift of things? Well, because you think that more things are what's going to make you happy. And why don't you respect God's gift of words? Because you believe that you can create a reality in which you are happy by your words. So the ninth and 10th commandment are finally getting us down to this place where we realize that the reason that everything is messed up, the reason that nothing goes right in this world for any length of time is us. Now, you don't just need the ninth and the 10th commandment to tell you that. The Bible says that through and through. Jeremiah 17 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? God says that our human heart is so corrupted, so fully and completely corrupted, that it is beyond cure. Paul in the New Testament says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. This is hard to admit, isn't it? I mean, our general disposition towards the world is that everyone and everyone else and everything else is what's making us unhappy. But the Bible's perspective is actually what's making you unhappy is you. Now, the old theologians call this the doctrine of original sin, and yet I am pretty convinced that it is the hardest doctrine to believe. The hardest doctrine to believe is original sin, because at some level, I think we can narcissistically believe that there might be a God out there who would love us so much because we're so awesome that he would save us from the little peccadilloes that we fall into sometimes. But the, the doctrine of original sin says that everything from top to bottom about every human being is completely corrupted. There is nothing redeemable in humanity. And the ninth commandment is trying to get us to understand that truth. deep down, it's hard, right? We, we want to believe that there's something at least a little bit good about us, a little bit of good behavior, a little bit of a good attitude. We're generally better than at least some people. God says, no, look at your heart. 
You're a mess of complex desires that conflict one another and conflict God's word. And you can't help yourself. Like maybe you could clean up how much you you speak um, disrespectfully about your authority or how well you treat your body or how much you honor your marriage or how well you take care of your things or how careful you are with your words. But when God gets to the ninth and 10th commandment, he says, no longer is it really about the outward appearance. It's what's going on in the heart. You can't hide from it. The, per- the reason that we're unhappy is that we are fully and completely corrupted. Now, you might say to yourself, well, that's super depressing. <laughs> but actually, I think what God is doing in the ninth and 10th commandment by showing us this, that we are, we are profoundly unhappy and that the reason we're profoundly unhappy is all our fault is actually to set us free, which is the third point that we're going to go through today. How being unhappy is actually the only way to be happy. The best place I think you can see this is in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember this? Uh, the most famous sermon that Jesus preached, it's in Matthew 5 through 7, and it starts with this section that is commonly called the Beatitudes, where you read the text of Jesus saying, blessed are those who, about nine times. That word that is translated blessed is this Greek word makaroi. And it can mean blessed, but actually the very first and most common word that this uh, word is translated into in English is not blessed, but instead happy. So just think about this for a second. If we would take Matthew 5, where Jesus is giving those beatitudes and change the word blessed to the word happy, the more common use of that word, how would the beatitudes sound? Well, let's try it. Happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Happy are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Happy are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Happy are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Happy are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Happy are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Happy are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And happy are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of things, evil things about, against you because of me. It kind of changes the way you read it, doesn't it? Like, I, I think if we're honest, a thinking person would say, False. Like, that doesn't make logical sense. I mean, literally, the second one of those, Jesus, is where you say, happy are those who mourn. Those are two diametrically opposed emotions. So what are you going to do? Are you going to, like the translators of the Bible, try to make it make sense? To say something like, well, it can't mean happy. It must mean blessed. Like, you are sad right now, but then you're going to be happy later. Or are you going to take Jesus at his word? And let Jesus say that actually when you are mourning, when you are poor in spirit, when you are hungering, when you are willing to admit that the world is messed up and you are the problem, that is when you are most happy. You might say to yourself, I don't feel it. And I would say, you're right. But you don't walk by sight, Christian. You walk by faith. And when God says something, even if it doesn't make sense to you, you believe it. So maybe what you need to do is replace Jesus' definition of happiness for yours. This is the part where you might say to yourself, see, this is why I don't like Lutheran churches. They're so depressing. They're always like sadistically talking about being sad and saying it's happiness. I get you. (laughs) But I actually think it's for a really wise reason. First of all, of course, it's what the Bible says. And so we're going to hold on to what the Bible says. But I think actually something really cool is happening when we look at the scripture 
and have a low anthropology, a low sense of how humans behave and think. Uh, to illustrate that to you, I want you to think about being a coach uh, of like a, a young athlete who is showing promise in whatever sport it is that you want to coach. You might say to that child, I, I think you can actually go somewhere with your skills. If you put in the effort, you put in the time, you might make it. And so that kid believes you and he, he starts to put in the time and the effort and he advances from house league to, to competitive to club and maybe into some minor leagues. But for most athletes, eventually they hit that wall. That place where they can't go any farther because their skills aren't just, are just not good enough to compete at that level. You can make a kid feel good for a while, but the vast majority of children who try to make it to the pros hit that wall and end up failing. They end up not making it. And so what are you doing to that child? Well, you're giving them this hope that they're somehow going to get so good that they're going to be pro and then they find out they can't and that they wasted a whole bunch of time getting there. There's something parallel in Christianity. Like when Christians hear the message of the gospel, what their, their immediate reaction is in many cases, and frankly what many teachers will tell them, is that now you have the chance to change, to be good. That if you put in the effort, that if you put in the time, you can grow, you can be a better person, a better Christian. And at first, it works. I mean, for many people who are stepping right into Christianity for the first time, their lives do change. They're more patient, they're more generous, they're more kind than they were before. But if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know that eventually that flattens out and you hit a wall. It might be the wall of a season where you don't feel like you're particularly close to God or like you're growing in your faith. It might be the wall of a gross sin that you never thought you would commit, especially because you're a Christian. But we all hit that wall. And we find out we can't actually get as good as we thought we could. And we start to wonder, did I waste all my time getting to this point? In a way, Lutheran theology is kind of like the coach who knows that none of the kids that he coaches, no matter how good, are ever going to make it to the pros. And so he doesn't give them false hope. He doesn't say, you can do it. He says, frankly, kid, you're probably not going to make it. So enjoy playing the game. Get better. It'll be more fun that way. But don't have these ideas that you're somehow going to make it. Like, care about the things that actually matter, not that. In a way, that's what we do with our theology as well. We look at the ninth and 10th commandment and, and we see from God that really deep down, none of us is ultimately going to get better. We might be able to make some minor changes, some tweaks that might make us a little bit more beneficial to our neighbor, but frankly, none of us is really going to get to this super high spiritual obedience level. And so we just say, don't try. <laughs> Enjoy the game. Enjoy the freedom of knowing that you can't do it. Enjoy the freedom of not having the pressure on you to perform. Those people who actually make it to the pros, they understand this. Many professional athletes will say that as they play the game, they no longer really enjoy it. It's a job. It's putting in their time to make money, to pay the bills. And frankly, it frustrates them more than it gives them joy. That's because for, for them, they have this constant pressure to perform, to be enough, to pull it off. I can tell you from my own personal experience, that's true of me also. Um, some of you know I, I played competitive golf in school, and I will tell you that I really didn't enjoy it. Because I was always trying to perform, I was always trying to get better, I was trying to help my team win, and when I wouldn't, I would get frustrated and angry at myself. But that first round of golf that I played, after I was done playing competitive golf, was the most enjoyable golf round I've ever played in my life. <laughs> Because I was free. 
I didn't have to perform. I couldn't perform. No one was keeping track. That's where you are, Christian. You're free. You can't do it. And frankly, no one's keeping track because there's no chance that you'll ever be good enough for God. So stop trying so hard. Stop beating yourself up when you can't. Because you can't. And then lean into the gospel that even though you can't, God did. So the Ten Commandments are given to us not to be a to-do list of all the things that we need to pull off in order to make God happy with us or for us to be more holy. The Ten Commandments are God eviscerating all of our self-salvation projects, those things that we build up in our mind to make us good enough for ourselves or for our family or for our culture or for God. And everyone's self-salvation project is a little bit different. You know yours. You know the things that you feel like you have to do in order to be somebody who matters. God says you'll never be able to get there. And only when you start to realize that will you be able to understand the gospel. The only way you can completely understand the gospel is if you give up on yourself. If you give up on yourself. The gospel is not, you start going and God will take you the rest of the way. Or you get most of the way there and God will finish the job. It is that you have absolutely no worth before God because of your sin, and yet God in his grace chose to imbue you with worth to send his son to die for you, to forgive all your sins, and to free you from that burden of the law that's on you. To maybe illustrate this for you, um, I want to let you in on a conversation that I was having with some other pastors this week. One uh, pastor in a group chat that I'm in asked this question about the image of God, which is a really interesting theological concept, and we could have a long conversation about it. But the basic idea is, uh, when God created human beings, he created them in his image, and then the question is, well, when human beings sinned, did they completely lose God's image, or did they only partially lose God's image? And there's some good debate on either side. But what one of the pastors said in that group chat really struck me, and I think illustrates this point well. He said, for most people who want the idea of the image of God to continue even after our sin, it is because they are grasping for some little part of themselves that is worthy of God. Some little part of them that that they can justify as God's reason for saving them, for keeping them, for wanting them. But if it's true that actually our complete image of God was lost in the fall, then the only reason that any of us has any value at all is because God says we do in sending Jesus for us. And again, that's a more freeing place to be. If your job is to go out and be the image of God, good luck. You'll fail. You'll never do it well enough. But the gospel is that you're free. You don't have to. God has done it for you. He has made you the image of God in Christ through word and sacrament. None of this depends on you. And and that is the ultimately freeing message of the ninth and 10th commandment. You're unhappy because you're corrupt. But for those who are willing to realize that they and the world around them are completely messed up, they will finally turn to a savior who can actually save them. They can actually cast all of their cares on him because he cares for you. They can admit that this world in its present form is passing away and that they have a heavenly home that is waiting for them. And that actually makes them a blessing to their neighbor because they're no longer trying to extract value from the world, extract love from the world to make themselves happy. They are truly happy because they see the world the way that it is 
and know that the world that is coming will finally make them happy. Let's pray. Jesus, we admit that every day we fight against our sinfulness. We're trying to find anything and anyone who can make us happy except you. And so we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would crucify our idols, that you would destroy the things that we trust in to make us happy, and that we would lean into the full gospel, that you have done everything necessary for us. Help us to give up on ourselves and to find our holiness in you. And from that holiness, to live as free Christians to the benefit of our neighbor. We ask that all in your name. Amen.